Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker and our featured sermon this week as we read from number 892 to 898 is the 898th sermon entitled A Word with Those Who Wait for Signs and Wonders. It was preached by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington in London on the 31st of October 1869. I've not been able to determine if there were a precise occasion for the preaching of this sermon, by which I mean an event or series of events which stimulated what he had to say, but it is a scorcher in which he's dealing very immediately and directly with a particular issue. His text is, This is an evil generation, they seek a sign, Luke 11 and verse 29. And he's dealing then with the demand or expectation that God will do some unusual work in order to confirm whether or not someone can come to Christ, is coming to Christ, or will come to Christ. Now, the modern Pentecostal movement really began in the early years of the 20th century with uh, what is sometimes referred to as the Azusa Street Revival. The modern charismatic movement is a production of later in the 20th century, but this notion of apostolic signs and particular gifts and miracles. This has been along uh, with the church and this appetite for signs, this demand for uh, some unusual revelation from God in order to confirm what we ought to believe is clearly a long-standing issue. So I don't know if there was a, a particular uh, expectation of this or an issue or an individual who was promoting these kinds of things, but as we've said, Spurgeon goes hard against it. He begins by reminding us that in the olden time, the Old Testament, God condescendingly gave signs to his servants, gives us some examples. In the cases of holy men favoured with signs, he says there was faith. There was a real desire for more faith and a willing obedience to God. But the work to which the men were called was peculiar, difficult and even superhuman, and the flesh being but weak, God in infinite tenderness to the weakness of his servants gave them signs and wonders that they might be strengthened thereby. Uh, he doesn't uh, immediately refer here to the fact that they were also living before the completion of the canon of Scripture, that is the full revelation of God's saving purposes in Christ. Uh, doesn't refer to uh, the uh, interesting uh, sequence in which uh, seasons of miraculous power were seen uh, in the Old Testament scriptures and the uh, the limited number that there actually are. But he does say, if it were it utterly impossible today even for the anxious and truly penitent spirit to find rest without a sign, I believe the sign would be given. Though I also believe that in no case is such a thing at all necessary under the gospel dispensation and here he does use this line of argument, but which is so enriched with plainest evidence that to add more would be to hold a candle to the sun or pour water into the ocean. He also adds that signs have been given and have not worked faith in those who have seen them, and that there is no necessary connection then between seeing signs and believing that which the signs attest. And he gives us some more historical examples. My hearers, if you do not believe Moses and the prophets, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ with the testimonies which are already before you, neither would you believe though one rose from the dead, 
although all the plagues of Egypt should be repeated upon you with tenfold fury. There is no necessary connection between the seeing of wonders and the believing in God, for we learn clearly from Pharaoh's case and from many others that all the displays of wonderful power, either of judgment or of mercy, do not beget faith in unbelieving hearts. And with that concern before him, he wants to deal with a class of persons very common still among us, he says, exceedingly common in all congregations where the gospel is faithfully preached, whom I shall attempt to describe in the first place and then go on to deal with them as God shall help me. So he's he's doing this, uh, a, a sort of a pastoral polemic. That is, he wants to expose an error in order to promote what is true. And he's dealing with it because there are so many people now, as then, who have to work through these things. So then, he wants to describe the persons who are an evil generation that seek after a sign. We have among us, he says, many individuals aware that they're sinners, conscious of their guiltiness to such an extent as to be very uneasy to their, as to their condition. He describes something of the knowledge that they possess. So uh, these aren't people who are just trading on their feelings. They've been instructed. They know the truth of the gospel. And the assumption might be that given all they know, surely they believe in Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon says, no, they don't. And they justify their remaining in unbelief by telling you that if they felt a certain thing, saw a certain thing, if something happened or if something else occurred, then they would believe in Jesus, but not until then. So they are demanding something in addition to the clear preaching of the substance of the gospel. And Spurgeon says that they make varied, different demands. There are some, he says, and generally the most uneducated, who expect to experience remarkable dreams or to behold singular or distinctive visions. I'm sometimes astonished that there should linger amongst our population still a notion that a certain kind of dream, especially if it be repeated a number of times, and if it be so vivid as to remain upon the imagination for a long period, is an index or indicator of the divine favour. And he's absolutely blunt. He says it's grossly untrue. Nothing could be more baseless and without the shadow of evidence to back it up. He uses the example of a, a woman who called him to her sickbed. She was persuaded that she'd had some uh, vision in the night. She'd hoped that it was Jesus, but she, she couldn't see his head. And Spurgeon, being such a spiritual man, perhaps he could tell her who it was. His suggestion was that she must have hung up her dress on a peg on the wall at the bottom of her bed and in the dark had mistaken it for an apparition. And of course, Spurgeon rapidly then fell in her estimation as not really a spiritual man at all, but a very carnal man, if not even a scoffer, because he could not believe that this apparition that she had seen was real. Now, he says there may have been, I will not deny it, for stranger things there have been, there may have been dreams and even apparitions which have aroused the conscience and so led to the commencement of spiritual life, in some rare cases where God has chosen specially to interfere. But that these are to be looked for and to be expected is a thing as far from truth as the East is from the West. Now you notice what's interesting there. He doesn't say that the dream was the means of someone being converted. What he means, what he says was that the dream aroused the conscience 
and so ultimately led to the commencement of spiritual life. And he says, even in such circumstances, that is rare. The dream itself, he says, proves nothing. And it, it makes you, uh, puts you in the category of the, you know, the, the superstitious and the uninstructed. Not fit, he says, for Christians of the 19th century. Then he talks about others. Now, uh, we've mentioned then the, the ones who expect remarkable dreams or visions. He says, others we've met with who suppose that in order to being saved, they must feel some very peculiar physical sensation. Now, he says, that joy and peace of mind and the discovery of the gospel when it for the first time flashes on the mind may produce extraordinary sensations in the body through the force of mental emotion. That I do not doubt. But do, I pray you, remember that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has nothing to do with nerve and muscle and sinew and things to be seen and to be felt in the flesh. The operations of grace are a mental, spiritual work. So again, I think we appreciate Spurgeon's balance and wisdom here. The, the impact of the truth in the soul may have a physical impact upon us, but the operations of grace are not in themselves physical. You must not put physical contortions or sensations as a test before the Lord and say you will not believe in him otherwise. And so some of these uh, demands for physical manifestations, he's talking primarily about uh, some kinds of feelings, but uh, whether it be the uh, you know, rolling around on the on the floor, the so-called carpet time, or the uh, some of the noises and the uh, agitations or the dances, Spurgeon says that's no indication of spiritual effect. These, he says, I hope are rare cases. He sort of gone large with the first couple, but he now moves on to frequent instances. I've met with people who will not believe in Jesus Christ to the salvation of their souls because they have not felt wretched enough. And there are certain schools of thought, and we have plenty of them here in the UK, and you may have them where you are, where there's uh, some sense that there needs to be a, a descent to a certain uh, almost measurable degree of misery before you can come to Jesus Christ. Uh, typically, it's cultivated either by reading a certain kind of biography or in some cases by uh, a sort of a, a spiritual trajectory that is demanded of everybody in a certain place. He says, poor demented one you would be to desire misery and to make your own wretchedness and even your own unbelieving and wicked thoughts of God to be a kind of preparation for faith in Jesus Christ. It is a most insanely wicked thing. And yet many, many, many persist in unbelief because they think they are not wretched enough. It, it, it's making an, an idol of your misery almost. Then, running to the other extreme, I've met with others who would not simply trust Christ because they were not happy enough. Uh, they've heard of a Christian's joys and the peace like a river that abides evermore. And they've said, well, if I could get that peace, then I could believe. He says, that's like saying, if I saw the wheat full grown in the fields of my soul, I'd begin to sow. Peace of mind, he points out, is the result of faith. But they demand that they shall have the result of faith before they exercise faith itself. In fine, they come to God and ask for the wages before the work is begun, demanding peace, the peace that comes from believing, before they will believe. He talks about others would not believe in Christ because they could not pray 
eloquently. Or if I could pray like so-and-so to whom we've listened with the greatest pleasure, then I could put my trust in Christ. Once I've got this uh, fluent prayer, which could simply be the gift of the gab, could be the result of mere oratorical gifts rather than any spiritual graces, even if it were the result of great depth of piety, why would you expect to have that kind of demonstration before you have true faith, the beginning of grace in your soul? He says, again, you're putting the cart before the horse. I've known others who must feel precisely like certain eminent saints have felt many years after their conversion, or else they cannot believe that they are saved. So they reach down the life of some holy man who's mastered his passions by long years of mortification, now living near to God, whose life was the heavenly life on earth, and they say, I won't believe in Jesus, I cannot trust in Christ unless I am just like this man. He says, well, this is a marvellous thing. Truly, if there be anything wonderful on earth beside the mercy of God, it's the perversity of man and the strange way in which unbelief will dare impudently to set up one demand after another as an excuse for rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. You're looking for mature fruits before you've even put down the first roots. And then he talks about a somewhat indescribable shape that this mischief can take. Sir, says the young convert, you tell me that if I simply put my trust in Jesus, I shall be saved. But is not salvation a great mystery? This sort of vague statement that, you know, there's really all unclear and nothing can be sure. Our reply, he says, must honestly be, no doubt it is. Well then, they determine to wait until they are the subjects of some singular feeling, some mysterious phenomenon within themselves. He says it's not to be denied that the work of grace by the Holy Ghost in the soul is the highest of all mysteries, but it is never also to be forgotten that it is one of the grandest of all simplicities. The problem with, with this way of thinking is that you're not really sure what you're waiting for. Sometimes you hear people say something like, well, I'm not sure if I really feel like a Christian. You ask them, well, what does a Christian feel? And they really can't tell you. He says it's one of the the attractions of false religion, that they uh, they offer this kind of uh, darkness and gloominess uh, and create this sort of artificial sense of mystery. And it's quite attractive to those who are waiting for something mysterious and something that is uh, ominous. But he says the problem is that most men reject the gospel for the very reason that it is simple. Signs and wonders they will still demand something artificially mysterious their soul still craves after, but the naked grandeur of the sublime mystery of faith they cannot perceive. So Spurgeon is saying these are the kinds of people that we're talking about. These are the kinds of issues that we have to deal with pastorally. People who are seeking after a sign, a remarkable dream or vision, a distinctive physical sensation, uh, a measure of misery, or indeed a, a certain degree of happiness, a demand for gifts perhaps in prayer, an expectation of spiritual maturity uh, like a mature Christian, or, or sometimes just this vague and nebulous expectation that there must be something more mysterious, something uh, more uh, distinctive that they're, they're waiting for. Not sure what, but hopefully it's out there somewhere. Spurgeon says you need to understand, secondly, the folly of such conduct. 
and he speaks very straight at this point. He says, first of all, you seek what is quite unnecessary. What do you want a sign for? You want, you say, a token of God's love. What token of God's love to you can ever be wanted now that he has given his only begotten son first to live on earth and then to die in pain's extreme, the just for the unjust, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I blush for you that you should ask any token of God's love while Jesus Christ is before you, for herein is such love as nothing else can ever equal. You understand the reasoning here. You're saying, I need a sign that God loves me. Spurgeon asks, what other sign do you want outside of the death of God's beloved sign? What do you want a sign for, he asks. Why, to show that there is mercy for you. How do you need that? You're alive, aren't you? God has not cut you down, despite you being an unbeliever. He sort of says, you're asking for things. You've got the gospel itself as the greatest of signs and wonders. What do you need besides what God has given? Mark you, if you did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you did not believe that his blood could cleanse from sin, I might talk somewhat differently to you. But you do believe all this, and I say, in the name of all that is reasonable, what makes you ask for any greater sign than the signs which God has already given to you? You are seeking for altogether unnecessary things. Then he says, it's not only unnecessary, it's useless. What evidence could there be now, for instance, in mere dejection of spirit? You want to feel miserable, you say. Well, what evidence would that be of your salvation? It seems to me that you're like a man who should say that he would catch hold of a rope if he could sink so many fathoms deeper in the ocean, or that he would avail himself of a dispensary if his disease was so much worse. He'd go and see a, a doctor or a physician or a, a pharmacist. How strange that a rational man should talk thus. Despair is no help to faith. Sinful doubts cannot assist you to Christ, but they may most effectually keep you from him. So he's saying, I I wish I could be more miserable. Why, says Spurgeon, would you want to be miserable when that doesn't tend to to help you toward faith? Or then the the other side that he mentioned, the, the ecstatic joy. What difference could that make, he said? It might be no more than worldlings feel when their wealth increases. It might be mere animal excitement or based upon a lie. Christ is worthy of confidence, but your joys and your sorrows are not. They may be good or they may be bad. They may be hopeful or they may be delusive. But why then do you look at them or seek another foundation than the one which God has laid? Your feelings are fickle things. Believe and live. Do not rely upon either the heights or the depths of human emotion and affection. They in themselves are not the grounds for your believing or for your confidence that you have believed. Are you not also seeking most unreasonable things? To ask a sign from God when he's already pledged his word seems to me to be out of all reason. You're a beggar, and so you cannot be a chooser. You won't take the mercy which the gospel freely offers, which God even commands you to accept. You demand an astonishing sign or wonder in addition. Then you're asking for an unpromised sign. God has promised that everyone that believes in Jesus Christ shall live. He has promised to hear prayer, but he has never promised to give any one of you a sign 
or a wonder, and yet you go on demanding for one. Then he says some of you are actually seeking for injurious signs, things which do harm to you. He goes back to this misery. He said, why would you want to be depressed in spirit? Why would you ask God to bring you so low as to make everyone around you miserable? Why would you want to be perhaps even brought to the point of suicide when to think of self-destruction already makes you to be sinning against God? Oh, be content to be led in a gentler way, he says. Why would you want harshness and, and lowness and misery? Be willing to be blown to Christ by the soft south wind. Ask not for tempests. Be satisfied to be drawn by the cords of love and by the bands of a man. Demand not whips and chains. Inquire not for the thunders and lightnings of Sinai. Be satisfied with the turtle notes of Calvary, the, the singing of the dove. Now, sometimes we must acknowledge God does need to bring men low. God does use some of these miseries in order to bring people to Christ. But says Spurgeon, why would you look for it? Why would you long for it? Why would you ask for it? If God brings you by a gentler road, you should be thankful for that. Then he says, if you're not believing but seeking signs, you're looking for that which others have never had. And he uses a couple of examples. You've got the prodigal son and then you've got the Canaanite woman. And instead of signs they were given, the, the, the prodigal son went without even an invitation. For the Canaanite woman, uh, she had actual discouragements and yet she pressed on and says, what then do you do in demanding that which others were not given? Now he says, thinking about what you're actually asking for and why you're asking it. And again, he pushes the knife deeper. Let me now lay bare your sins, your grievous sins. And this is uh, probably the most pointed part of the sermon. In the first place, he says, you make God a liar. And this is the very testimony of the Holy Ghost. He that believes not has made God a liar. How do we treat liars? If they tell us something, we say, well, I'm very doubtful of it. I want more evidence. Now, he says, I feel persuaded that many of you respect even me so well that if I made a statement, you would accept it without any further evidence. But here is the everlasting God who declares that whosoever trusts his son shall be saved. And you practically give him the lie. For if you believed what he testifies, since you want to be saved, you would surely trust his son. But you practically say, we do not believe it. We do not believe it. We want more evidence. We want a sign and a wonder. And so you make God a liar. In the next place, you insult God's sovereignty. He has a right to give signs or not as he wills. But you say, as it were, give me a sign or else I am damned. Is the preacher too hard with you, he asks? Ah, oh, it's love that makes me hard. In truth, it's you who are hard with God and hard with your own souls. You're demanding that God deal with you in a certain way rather than in the way that God is pleased to deal. What is more, he says, you're acting the part of an idolater. You're demanding something that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hand. You cannot believe God's naked word. You demand what you can feel and what you can see. This, says Spurgeon, is sure, sheer idolatry. Do you not see it? 
You're making your own feelings, your emotions, your strange impressions to be more worthy of trust than even God himself. You make them idols and put them into God's place. As far as you can, you undeify the deity. And again, he says, you crucify the Savior. Those who nailed his hands to the tree were not greater sinners, even if they were so great as those who say to him, bleeding Savior, I believe that you have died on the cross. I believe that your blood could cleanse sin, but I cannot trust you to do it. I have no confidence in you. I cannot, will not trust you. I trust my husband, but not my saviour. I trust my child, but I cannot trust my God. I trust my minister, but I cannot trust the Son of God exalted in the highest heavens. This is to treat Christ like a dog, says Spurgeon. Ah, says one, I don't mean that, but I just want to see the work of the Holy Ghost in my soul. Well, says Spurgeon, then I've got another charge to bring against you. You're wanting to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit instead of trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. That's a an indictment, isn't it, of so much even of the, the, the modern signs and wonders movement. There's no text in all the Bible, says our preacher, which tells you to make the work of the Holy Ghost the foundation of our confidence. Nowhere is it set forth as the ground for a sinner's reliance. It occupies quite another place. Now listen to the warning. If you try to put the work of the Spirit where the work of Christ should be, you grieve the Holy Ghost. For the very last thing that ever the Holy Ghost would do would be to supplant the Lamb of God. It is his office and mission, the Spirit's, to glorify Christ. How then shall he supplant him? When you say, I cannot trust the blood, I cannot trust the righteousness of Christ, I must have something from the Holy Ghost to trust to, you do, as it were, try to make a clash between the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Christ, and this grieves the Spirit to the last degree. It's, a, I think, a really powerful statement that to, to, to put the work of the Spirit almost in opposition to the work of Christ, to demand that he elevate his own work over the saving work of the Lord Jesus, would be to actually grieve the very Spirit that you might imagine you are honouring. Again, I think that today we really need to take some of these warnings to heart. We really need to understand what Spurgeon is saying because it's so important. And let me also chip in here and say it's worth remembering that Spurgeon has said so much that you can almost take any any group and they could probably try and claim him by seizing upon a sentence here or a statement there. And I've seen a lot of charismatic friends try and do just that kind of thing. They've they've heard him say something in a sermon and they've claimed him for themselves. And I think we really need to, to put this kind of sermon alongside some of those claims and, and get the, the richer and the fuller and the more complete sense of what Spurgeon believes about the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But let's move on because he's got uh, two brief dangers that he wants to address. He says, I've thought this over carefully. I've tried to speak upon it earnestly. I'm conscious that when I've done my best, some of you will go on in this folly and continue continue in this sin. Yet I do pray the Holy Spirit that it may not be so. For now, during the last few minutes, I want to show you your danger, just as I've shown you your folly and your sin. 
First of all, then, you're in danger of death. You admit it and you suppose that, and suppose then that you might die in the state that you're in. Well, you're almost saved. So remember again the pastoral concern. You've got people who know everything that they need to know about Christ, but they are waiting for something else before they put their faith in him. And he says to be almost saved is to be altogether damned. That the, the householder almost bolted his door at night, but the thief came in. The prisoner condemned to be hanged was almost pardoned, but then executed. A ship was almost saved from shipwreck, but went to the bottom. A fire almost extinguished, but it consumed a city. A man almost decided remains to perish in the flames of hell. What are you waiting for? asks Spurgeon. Remember, friend, you might be damned before the sun goes down today. The flames of hell might enclose you before the sun shall gild another morning with his light. Oh, seek the Saviour now while the gospel message comes with fresh power on this Lord's day. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For he that believes and is baptised shall be saved. He's saying don't wait for anything more than God has promised and given and holds out to you. Don't demand what God has not said that he will give, but take Christ now and be full of peace and joy in believing. Then another thing of which you're in danger, namely that if you're spared for years to come, yet through long procrastination your conscience may become seared as with a hot iron. In other words, though you Though you now feel your need of salvation, if you keep putting that off, if you keep demanding something beyond what God has given and promised, you may reach the point where you don't feel the desires that you now do. If you do this day believe, whatever you may have been, your sins are all forgiven you in a moment. If you do now look to Christ upon Calvary and trust your soul with him, you shall now live. But if you look to your good works, to your preparations, to your fears, to your joys, if indeed you look to anything but Christ, it may be the Holy Ghost will never strive with you again. Your conscience will become hardened and you being given up to your idols will perish, utterly perish under the very sound of the gospel, perish with the light of the gospel shining on your eyeballs, perish of the serpent bite while the brazen serpents lifted high, perish of thirst when the water of life runs rippling at your foot because you are not content to stoop down and take it as God presents it to you. Oh, that you would this very day end these follies and these sins, believing in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Ghost. This then is is really an assault upon anything that would demand something more than the fullness of Christ in all his saving excellency. It's as uh, striking and as needful today as it ever was. Perhaps we might say even more so when there are so many who are building their, their expectations or or establishing their, <clears throat> their, their hopes upon the idea that if they just have some so-called spiritual manifestation, today it's the whole sort of, well, if you, you speak in tongues and you can be sure, all these kinds of things. Spurgeon says, no, no, no. The gospel of God, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the, 
the man who died and rose, the one whom the Spirit delights to to exalt, uh, upon whom he throws the spotlight of revelation, upon whom he, he focuses all the attentions of his saving operations, Spurgeon says, believe in him. I hope that if if we're dealing with people who are struggling with these things, we'll show the same honesty and the same spiritual compassion as Spurgeon. If we're subject to these things, that this might send us back to Christ crucified, not putting anything between us and him, but resting in him now that we might not die but live. I trust that it has been a blessing to consider these things. I hope it's been useful to you as a Christian, perhaps as a minister, and I hope you'll join us again, God willing, next week. We're going to be reading then Sermon 901, which is called The Upper Hand. Sermon 901, The Upper Hand, Sin Shall Not Have Dominion Over You, For You Are Not Under the Law, But Under Grace. I hope you'll join me on that occasion. If you can only read the one sermon, remember, just read 901. If you want to join us for more, it's 899 to 905. If you want to learn more, then go to mediagratii.org slash podcasts and you'll find more information uh, on this podcast and others that you might appreciate. Or you can find us at Reading Spurgeon on Twitter. But until you join us again, And as long as the Lord spares us to do some of these things, then may he have mercy upon us, show us more of Christ, and lift up our hearts toward him. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again in the future. Goodbye for now.